And we're live with our 153rd episode of Absolute Absec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. Um, honestly, I was thinking about it earlier today, Ken. I don't know if when we started this, if we thought we would ever get past, you know, 20 episodes, much less, much less 150. Um, but it does feel like things are rolling right along. Uh, life and business is really busy right now and community is booming. There's a lot of good research that's coming out. Um, I know we haven't had as many guests on over the last month or so. Um, I think that's partially just due to the fact that Ken and I have been super busy and we just haven't been scheduling people. Um, but we will be getting on that, especially in the new year, um, pulling other industry people back into it. Um, but if you have someone or you would like to come on the show, please reach out. Uh, we're always interested in different viewpoints, different guests. It's not just Ken and I that talk about this stuff or are opinionated about it. Obviously, there's a lot of us that are out there that can that, that can have that discussion. Um, yeah, outside of that, uh, B-Side Salt Lake City is this week. It starts its Friday, Saturday. I will be there. Um, I will have some Absolute AppSec swag. We are getting, we're, we have to do a refresh because we gave everything away, I'm pretty sure, Ken. Um, so it's time to to find some new t-shirts and to get some new uh, stickers and things like that. I think stickers is all I have left on my side. Um, I've got some of these shirts left um, cool. if anybody wants them. So you can email okay. info at absoluteabsec.com. That's info at absoluteabsec.com. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, we'll get them out to you. Um, so I needed address and t-shirt size, by the way. People don't yes. send me the t-shirt size and then I have to follow up, so... Just yeah. send that with. Just send that with. You just have to dox yourself. That's all. We just ask that you do it in an appropriate manner. Um, let's see. Outside of that, we've got quite a few articles to cover today. Uh, there's, you know, there, there's a few things that were on my radar that have been, you know, coming across the news. And, um, but I think Ken, you wanted to start with that fuzzing tool. So let's let's jump into that before we get into other things. Yeah, there's actually like, there's a second article too, which I shared in uh, this, another Slack that we're a part of, um, which is, so two, two, two things to follow up on. I just thought about this. So the first is like our request smuggling conversation the last couple episodes and just like, you know, testing microservices slash not just microservices, but like just service oriented architectures in general. Uh, but anyways, the second thing will be about uh, breaches, actually. We talked about breaches last week and breach fatigue and, bre and breach information and stuff like that. So I have another interesting article, I think. But let me uh, find the one that I... Sorry, Slack goes super slow when I'm running video chat. So it's uh, taking me a moment to load this. But we have a link here. Uh, it's pretty cool. A new fuzzing tool for request smuggling that was released. Let me, okay, I got it. And there you go. Cool. Um, and let me, T-Rex yeah, buzzer. Exactly. So um, it's basically, you know, a way to safely fuzz uh, for these vulnerabilities. Um, you know, I don't know how much there is to, to cover. I know it had been um, picked up by, I think the Daily Swig uh, picked it up and, and 
you know, talked to, talked about the, the tool. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a grammar fed, uh, fuzzer basically and generates, yeah. Uh, request smuggling payloads. Um, so anyways, it's, I figured that that'd be something cool to share. It's not, I don't have a ton to go over with, with it. It's a Python app and, uh, yeah, I think you should check it out. I think it's, it's, uh, it's pretty, uh, cool to have something like this. So, well, yeah, I, I, so this is, this is one thing actually that I've struggled with in the past when I'm using something like Redamsa or, you know, replaying attacks against HTTP servers in and of itself is that they're, they're not HTTP aware, right? The fuzzers in and of themselves. So, I mean, this is definitely a need that we've had for a while is mm-hmm. the ability to target specific components of the HTTP request rather than just, Hey, take that whole request and fuzz it, right? Like, um, so modifying different components has different effects, and so having having something that's a little smarter than the Damsa um, makes will just make our life easier. That's it's basically what it boils down to. Because I'll be able to actually target uh, the different components, right? Like we start talking about the layers that go into an HTTP request, um, which happens all at layer seven. But if you're replaying, you know, network packets, all you're doing is you're manipulating the the TCP stack as well, um, which can have other consequences, right? It ends up you you could end up attacking the HTTP server instead of the application. You want to be very targeted in those attacks to figure out where exactly the problems are. Um, so I take a look at it. I mean, this one's on my list to play with because uh, I, you know, we do quite a few assessments of kind of low level components at times uh, in those, in those microservice environments. So this, this, this should be a good tool to have in your back pocket along with the other stuff that we've talked about in the past. Mm -hmm. I don't know, Ken, have you, have you installed it or played with it yet or just found it? Just found it. No, it's, it seems interesting. I think what's, what I like about it is it's focused on, you know, if you look at the verbiage around the tool, it focuses on how there's a mismatch uh, or disagreement and that's probably the most elegant way to describe it. You know, these vulnerabilities are a disagreement between how components of a request should be parsed and handled. And that, that occurs between front end and back end services. So I know I've, I like, this is the third episode now where I f- feel like a broken record, but uh, it's an increasing issue. And it's nice to see sort of, you know, tools written around this. Um, it's not meant to be a pen test tool. They're pretty obviously clear about that. It's, it's not a, it's not necessarily a pen test tool. It's just sort of trying to figure out if there's a mismatch and disagreement. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, I, I, so sure I, that, I, yeah. yeah, no, I, I, I love that uh, as a, so, you know, a few years ago, like I gave that talk, like this, the whole sputter talk, the whole sputter idea. Um, and that was, uh, we're looking for, Secure, like indicators of security vulnerabilities, not necessarily trying to exploit or find the vulnerabilities completely. And we want to do that in a quick and concise manner. And this fits right into that uh, into that vein, right? Rather than, hey, we're going to try and create a pen test tool that does all these things and compromises people and, you know, can be used in nefarious purposes. Putting something like this in your pipeline when you're testing your web services means that when there are problems, they bubble up quickly, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be fully exploitable. 
but there's no reason that you have to jump down that path to fully exploitable because you know there's a problem. Let's go and fix it rather than you know beating a dead horse. Um, and it's it's kind of that trade off of hey, guess what? We really fill a QA role as penetration testers, um, security QA. Uh, but we don't really need to exploit everything to the umpteenth degree to prove that there's a problem or a security issue with it. So the team has a few interesting thoughts, which again, echo I'm sharing this because it echoes my, the sentiment I've been raising. And so just to clarify, the team is uh, our researchers from Northeastern university and uh, Akamai. Okay. Uh, But the notable quote, uh, you know, I, uh, uh, let me just read it. So secure components do not necessarily make a secure system. Security is an emergent property of the system as a whole, which I, let's just dissecting that, you know, just because you've got uh, securely written apps. Um, this is the point I was trying to make uh, last, last couple of weeks, which is just because the individual services have been secured and maybe some of the infrastructure has been looked at. It doesn't mean that when you take that as a whole and, requests pass through each of these systems that there isn't going to be something that that is just buggy edge case style behavior that introduces a security vulnerability which is what a lot of this is so the next in the next two sentences it's uh, they also say researchers did not traditionally view security from this lens that is changing with and this is really important this is changing with recently popular popularized attacks like smuggling cash poisoning and cash deception. Does this sound like anything that I said before <laughs> Seth? Does yeah. this not sound exactly like the thing? Yeah, exactly. This is this is the point. These these new it and oh, and let me continue with that. They say my team strongly believes that a systems centric view is key to thwarting the next generation of web attacks, the next generation of web attacks, and therefore we are actively studying this domain. Great, good. That is what we want. This is again. I know this is an emergent. Uh, area and I, I think you and I we've seen this it, it, and it's it's good to see it being acknowledged by the and pursued by the academic community as well as a corporate entity like Akamai um, I'm sure they deal with that pretty heavily but anyways it's just uh, maybe it's just it's validating some of my I don't know is there a validation bias or something but that's what it feels like it, it validating, <laughs> validating some yes. thoughts <laughs> Hence the reason pro- Ken brought it to the podcast today. Yeah, we like exactly. to feel validated, right? Uh, now exactly. I'm going to have to go fully. I'm not crazy. <laughs> I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. Look, <laughs> look, yeah. I know what's actually going on. No, that's a, that's a good one to have, right? I, yeah, I'm interested to see where that research goes. I, you know, I get definitely, I, I mean, we're, like you said, we're going to see more and more attacks in that space. I mean, you've already seen what James Kettle and, you know, the Port Swigger team can do with that. And, you know, that that feels like initial the initial foray into this kind of HTTP fuzzing, request muslin, fuzzing, ah, request smuggling, you know, cash poisoning, those all those sorts sorts of attacks that have been theoretical for so long are starting to be exploited. So um cool. Well good. So use that and yeah, let's We'll move on to the next article in our list for today. Um, did you want to talk about uh, the uh, infosec culture on Twitter, or did you want to talk oh, about authentication? Yeah. No, no, no. That's so. That's the other last thing that kind of wrapping things up in a nice little bow here. You and I talked about 
Um, specifically, so beyond the breach fatigue bit, we talked about the fact that, you know, there's not a lot of details that come out. We wish there would be more um, details that emerge from these breaches. That way there's a little bit, for one, it's always nice that you, you know, when, when, uh, so I'm just taking our, our straight up, always discussed, always mentioned insecure direct object reference or IDOR vulnerability that, you know, pop frequently crops up when, when there are actually details of a breach, we see it's, it's usually something along those lines or an RC or something like that, but it's helpful because for many reasons, one did I dissect, you know, Hey, yes. Uh, if this happened to them, then like maybe our systems are vulnerable. So we'll go secure that. Uh, also like, you know, if it's reported through one bug bounty program, uh, sometimes people submit it through other bug bounty programs. It's helpful to kind of be, have that awareness. Um, I know it's separate from a, that's kind of separate from the breach conversation, right? Um, that's just that like awareness, I guess. It's the same thing. I guess what I'm trying to say is, and I'm rambling, it's the same thing as when you see another bounty program and it's been disclosed, uh, some vulnerability has been disclosed and you're like, okay, well, this is probably coming my way. Let me look at the details of how they handled it. Um, that's usually helpful. It's similar with like a breach, right? Where you kind of tying this all together. When you see a breach and you know the details, you can, again, you can, you can, act accordingly in as an internal defender. But there are other reasons that are helpful too. Like when we talk about case studies, we like to point to real events that occurred. Um, and I think it's, it's helpful with like building awareness docs, like the top 10. Um, you know, I, I don't know how much those actually factor into the uh, data they're collecting. I can't remember off the top of my head, but there's like a number of reasons and we could probably find a million other little reasons for why this is useful. However, I like this talk because it, uh, or the, the, the idea of the talk, which is, um, if I can post this link here, um, it is about how zero tolerance uh, and the InfoSec council culture um, is hurting industry growth. And I know that's a mouthful and there's a lot to unpack there. Um, in this case, what they're saying is when people are breached, it isn't reported, or if it is reported, details are omitted, um, oftentimes just because of like a sense of shame. For sure, I was talking, I'm not going to name who I, who I talked to this morning, but they had suffered a breach at one point. And, you know, we were talking back and forth via private messages about, you know, the experience of that and how there's a stigma sort of, or there can be a stigma associated with having worked on a team that had had been, that has been breached. Um, you know, I, I don't think in the circles that I'm running in currently, which is more, you know, modern development culture, modern security culture, uh, it's as prevalent of an issue, but I do think that there's a, there's a great, you deal with a, the industry as a whole, not just a, you specifically, Seth. You you deal with intersections of all kinds of different cultures. So I think in in the other realms or the other cultures that I'm not running into, they're probably feeling a bit of that. You're probably seeing some like the shame bell being run rung. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting awareness conversation. It. It definitely is, right? And you and I have talked a fair bit about this, how we used to use Twitter as a kind of feed of research, security research in general, and how that's gone away in the last three, five years. Um, and I think this is, this is part of the reason is uh, 
that the, the whole idea of the cancel culture, like once you're involved in a breach, no one will ever listen to like any of the research you ever do. Um, and then we also have people that don't feel like they want to get involved or interact with the community because either they've been involved or they need to keep that stuff secret, or maybe the companies in and of themselves don't want to be in the news. And so it is stifling to what's going on. And we still see this, right? Like, especially with solar winds uh, and she like, yeah, the, the lady that gave this talk at, at Black Hat EU was, was working through the solar winds response in the community and how, everyone has a tendency, especially on Twitter and some of these social media apps to jump in and almost lay blame and point fingers. And, you know, it's a little bit of schadenfreude of, ah, you got, you know, you got breached, but only after they make sure they look around and they're like, were we, were we one of those that were in the the compromise? Right. Like I, I always think back, it was a number of years ago, uh, grifter, um, Neil, who's he's big in the Black Hat DEFCON communities, like one of the organizers, he gave a talk about this probably four or five years ago as well. After one of the big breaches, he was just talking about the security security trends in general. And that's that's the response that we often see is the whole, are we good? Are we good? Okay, now we're going to jump on the bandwagon, just blame you guys for not having good security practices, right? And... It, it, it's almost that, yeah, like like we cast dispersions on others when our own backyard is dirtier than anything else, right? It's, um, I, I mean, some of the most poorly written tools that are out there, insecure tools, are security tools written by security, the security industry in general, right? Um, Andrew Wilson has been talking about that for 12 years, at least, yeah. since I've yep. known him. And he's absolutely right. He's on. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to point out he has been on the podcast. So if you want, you can Google it, YouTube it. Yeah. Absolutely. YouTube Andrew Andrew Wilson. Yep. And then he's also, he's very active in, um, he's down in Phoenix, like cactus con, right. Is his baby. But, um, but that's, I I mean, that's just it, right. If you want to see some examples of security vulnerabilities, uh, like go look at, code from some of those open source projects uh, that were developed with good intentions. And then the security people got sidetracked on other things and aren't supporting it anymore. And now it's vulnerable to everything in the sun because yeah, they they just haven't had the time. So it's kind of hard to, you know, dig in that much or to take them seriously when they do cancel other people for the same thing that, you know, everybody's vulnerable to, there's just not a lot of empathy there, I guess is what I'm getting at. Right? Um, I know there is on our side because we've been in both of those situations where we've been on teams when a compromise happens or a breach happens. Hey, what do you actually do? How do you work your way through that? The amount of distress and uh I don't know, work that's involved with that is incredibly difficult. And so to, to, to pile on after the fact and have to defend yourself in a social media environment just feels cruel and unusual. Well, you know, as part of my role, I have to talk to a lot of people who are, you know, for one reason or another interviewing or um, yeah, otherwise like coming from somewhere else. And, uh, 
when I talk to them, it's, it's amazing. A lot of the things I thought, well, that's the old way everybody's evolved and learned, you know, by now that these are mistakes and we don't do these things like shaming people or whatever, you know, and you think it's common, you think it's common sense, but common sense is built on common knowledge. And the more I talk to uh, people, the, 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 the less common knowledge, uh, you know, or the less I feel there is that common knowledge of some of the things that are, I, again, I just assumed we don't, those, those were issues of the past, but they're not, they're still issues of today for some people. So, um, it's, yeah, it's interesting. And the more people I talk to, the more I'm just like, wait, the broader industry still has a ways to go. <laughs> like before they're caught up to, you know, some of them, like, I don't know how to say it leading um appsec security groups i don't you know i don't know again i don't know how to phrase that i use sometimes i use the water word modern but yeah there's a lot of catching up to do out there yeah yeah there is and i i mean i think it's a it's also an indication of how much the industry has grown right okay. we have people that aren't necessarily or they haven't been in the industry as long right and it, it is I, and to be fair, it is kind of it is interesting to see what happens to these organizations and why they get breached. But it's the it, the response that we have at times is is somewhat childish. That's all I was I was trying to get out there, um, and I think that's what the speaker here is talking about as well. This whole idea of the cancel culture that if you've been involved in a breach, you have no right to touch a computer from a security perspective ever again. When in fact, we should flip that script and say, man, you were involved in that breach. Those lessons that you learned during that probably make you a more valuable asset than anything else. And this is also why I don't like the idea of the CISO being the, the scapegoat in these situations. Uh, like that, that leader role and that person probably had nothing to do with why that breach actually happened. And to cut them loose means you are cutting loose organizational knowledge about how to prevent this in the future, right? Like we, like large organizations in general, uh, there's so much institutional knowledge that goes into how they how they work. Cutting loose the one guy that actually understands the security culture in an organization uh, means that you're cutting loose all of that knowledge that could be used in the future to prevent it from happening again. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, though. Like, I mean, we're, we're, we're spinning into organizational mechanics, but, you know, that's yeah. that's where the podcast goes sometimes. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Well, the unfortunate truth about leadership is that even if it's not directly your fault, you're going to be responsible your fault. for it if you're at the yeah. high, well, highest I, level. It, yeah. And that I, is. I mean, I get that. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. No, no, I, and that's why I think it's important. And I mentioned this in many places, uh, but I think it, yeah, I think you could, there's, can you see that? There's a tribe of hackers book behind me. I'm in one of those chapters and uh, in there talk specifically about being careful about where you go. Um, I think, I think I do. I'm pretty sure. Uh, and there's a reason for that because you do have to be careful where you go. So if you're going to be a CISO, you do have to be careful that where you're going, it, uh, there's a healthy, believe it or not, healthy development community inside your organization, if you're doing what we do anyways. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and if your business is, okay, I should walk that back. If you're not, 
it depends on your business model. But let's say you're a, a you know e-commerce type company, right? Yeah, you want to make sure that you have good development culture. If you're whatever whatever you're going to need to, to be successful in your successful in your role, you want to make sure that the uh, organization has a healthy culture, uh, regardless. And there, I don't know. We, I could spend the entire rest of the episode explaining and breaking that down, but I think that's that. I just want to keep it at that, like a summary of like, just be careful where you go. It will impact what you're able to do, and how badly you'll be burned if things go wrong. Yeah. Especially in those leadership roles. Right. Um, and right. Uh, yeah, that's, if, that's, that's what I'm explicit, explicitly talking about though. I do think that it's important for anyone, but yeah, especially for executive level leadership. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I know we could get into a whole, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure we can get into a whole discussion on that. Right. Now. It might oh, yeah, be we interesting could. to pull pull somebody in that's actually in those in that type of a role and talk to them about the the things that they have they have seen, um, right? Like anyway, um, so some of those past guests that we've had on that have discussed being in a security leadership role, whether that is CISO or something along those lines, have a lot of opinions about what they see and how do they try to build out a you know a security culture and how much the organization itself impacts what they're able to do. Um, but going back to it, right. Like I, I do feel like it's naive to uh, just, you know, pull that trigger and fire the CISO the first time a breach happens with some of the other things that go, go along. Um, and, but, you know, on the flip side, if they are, if that's how your organization is, that's what you've got to be expecting when you step into it, like that's, that's why you want to vet the company as well as them vetting you before you actually hire on. Um, cool. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's enough on that topic for today, Ken, uh, just because okay. I think, you know, I definitely think we could go into it more. Um, but I did want to bring up this um, user authentication article before we jump into one of the others here. Okay. Um, mainly because, I see failures in user authentication in every single application that we test. Every single one. Um, I don't think I've ever run into an application uh, in the last, you know, five years that hasn't had an authentication problem. And part of this is a misunderstanding of, how do I want to say this? Part of this is a misunderstanding as far as what user authentication entails and what authentication actually is. Um, and again, I go back to the crocs and socks of application security, right? I go back to AAA, like authentication, authorization, auditing. These are my favorite topics. Uh, if you ever get into a class with me, we will talk about AAA. Anyway, so authentication, identification of users. How the application identifies a user and confirms who they are is so critical to security functionality that it's a much more complex topic than just username and password. Um, and this, this blog is a good list of everything that you have to think about, but there is no solution there, right? He just says, wow, uh, it sounds like it's really simple. You're authenticating a person, you're identifying who they are. But all the different nuances that go into that, depending on your application, make it an extremely difficult topic. 
Uh, and I know, Ken, you guys deal with this from a GitHub perspective because of all the tokens that are used, because of all the avenues that people have to get access to code that um, like it's just a hard uh, it, it's a hard problem to solve across the board. Right. I, I mean, you know, it, like I start thinking about the GitHub authentication right? Everything from SSH to HTTP to, you know, and then you start throwing in 2FA, you start throwing in, yeah. okay, you've got like code spaces, you got all the different web services that, and this is just looking at it from an outside perspective, not internally what you guys are actually dealing with. Yeah, um, it's, it's yeah. very, it's a very difficult problem. I mean, or not problem, but it's very difficult to get right. Um, yeah, we have many ways of identifying people and then, um, and then coupling that with authorization internally. Um, I'll give you, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. So we did, um, because of the complexity, and if you have this level of complexity, we created a testing matrix for unit tests. Mm -hmm. And the matrix covers um, different, yeah, all the different scenarios that can go wrong. And then you can easily uh, uh, just reuse that for whatever you're building. So if you're building an endpoint, you can reuse this testing matrix to make sure that the weird buggy stuff that we've seen before isn't a problem. Um, that's, that's incredibly helpful. So that's my first recommendation. Um, but also, uh, it's interesting. They mentioned Springs, like it should just be easy to drag in a solution. Like they mentioned Spring Security in the article. Uh, one thing you and I cover a lot is devise in our um, course with Rails. And we we show how there's uh, the configuration files for devise. Ha it, it has, so it's, it's, it's actually multi multiple parts of that. So there's the configuration fi file itself for devise, which can be really, there's a lot of options. In fact, a lot of these checklist items they mention are actually covered inside of that configuration. Like whether you're now, sorry, whether you're going to allow magic links or whether you're going to allow people to not verify their email address and log in, you know, there's lots of, and, you know, verified emails being useful for like uh, 2FA or MFA. Um, so there's a lot of uh, variables that can be changed to the configuration file. Then on top of that, if you actually want to introduce something like some password complexity, for instance, you actually have to override typically at the model layer for a device specifically, um, what we, they have different strategies you can pull in at the model layer for, uh, let's say you're using a user class or user model uh, for, for all your users who you're authenticating. That's where you would make those additions. And then inside of those, you know, whatever strategies you've chosen, you then can override them. And that's how you would override to actually implement password, uh, or that's where you would override to implement password complexity stuff. So you've got um, the model la layer, and then you've got the uh, configuration. And then there's also like, you can override the controllers and the views. And th those provide you additional ways to extend security. So realistically, even a simple solution, a library that you're pulling in that's supposed to do all this for you, still has many ways that it can go wrong, many ways that it can be configured um, in many places inside of an application. And again, I know we talk about that in our course. Yeah, I, I mean, one of, one of my favorite, right, like that we talk about all the time or that is the use of the secret key for token generation, right? And the fact that 
everybody just clones a project and reuses that token, the same token value that's in that base project over and over, even though there's warnings in the configuration file that says, change this before you use it. Yeah, everybody still uses it, right? And yeah. like that gives attackers the ability to predict what tokens are going to be. Well, maybe not predict, but at least generate tokens that are valid for that system. I mean, and that's where we run into problems with RCE and other things when we're doing deserialization, if they are using serialized objects as tokens. But at like just or that kind of base level. Failing, failing yeah. open too, where they call yeah. it like, Everybody's calling the set the same environment variable for to sign for different crypto op operations, which we all know should be a different key per crypto operation. Meaning, if I'm doing session generation, that's one key. If I'm doing webhook HMAC validation, that's another key, right? That's what I mean by that. Um, and people will reuse the same key, but then also fail open. So if that key doesn't exist in the as an environment variable, it'll just default to an empty string to generate those things. And um, like that happens all the time where like variables don't make it into prod for one reason or another, the, the environment variables don't get pushed. So now you're failing that? open instead of saying like, here's an exception, stop running the app. Like these secrets aren't there. So yeah, anyways, that's just one more additional crazy <laughs> yeah. thing that can happen and does happen. Well, I mean, we talked through this quite a bit, right? Like the, the, you know, looking for what can go wrong, thinking about what can go wrong from it, an authentication perspective. Like that's one of the pillars of our course, right? Is this idea of performing a threat model on your application from different perspectives. And this is one of those that we, we know that we have a checklist, right? So this is a good checklist of things that can go wrong but you've got to think about your application from that perspective of how, you know, what is it that I'm pulling in? What are those libraries? How are we identifying users? Um, how are those cookies being generated? Uh, like one that I just recently saw, I, I mean, just yesterday, I'm testing a mobile application, right? And they're like, oh, this is great, right? Like we're going to store the username and password in the keychain, like for, or like in the key store, protected in iOS and Android. And then, okay, that's great. But then I go look in the preference file and they're like storing the session token in plain text in the preferences files, like, uh, you know, that are getting backed up. I'm like, guys, right? Like, it's great that you protected the username and password. But again, this is an authentication failure that we didn't recognize. What is the most common token that is being used to authenticate users? It's not username and password. It's the actual session token that's generated upon authentication, upon login. Um, and that's not protected. So somebody just has to pick that out of that file and drop it into their browser or their application and they have access to your whole account. Uh, so, and this is an extremely common problem that I see. This is why I say we see these issues with every single application that we test. Yes, authentication is a broad topic. I get that. But we fall down in how we authenticate users. Sometimes it's not as critical as that. Sometimes we don't have complete account takeover because of authentication failures, but uh, like it's still something that's got to be thought about. It's something that you should test. And I end up spending way more time on it than I expected going into most assessments. And that checklist that you posted, the first thing is like, how is cookie security being handled? Which is the same thing as what you're talking about, sessions being stored in preference. So yeah, yeah. it's um, yeah. pretty- right like uh yeah jwts 
introduce almost more problems or they do, they generate more problems and they're worth like, we could, I, I'm sure we could have a whole session just ripping on JWTs again, if you wanted to, Ken. Yeah, I got to change shirts though. I got to get my, oh, that's true. my JWT that's true. hate. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 to be clear, it's just about when it's being used as a drop-in replacement for cookies and browsers that I'm, that it's an issue in my mind. But yep. in any case, yeah, no, authentication's case. hard. It remains hard. Um, yeah. And anybody, yeah, anybody can... that tells you that that it's easy is lying. That's you know, just they are. You know. Yeah. Just use yeah. this library. It's going to solve all your problems. It's not going to. So. Yeah, you still have to have somebody behind it helping to implement it properly and securely. That's for sure. Yep. Yep. Cool. Okay, so that's authentication for today. Uh, my little rant, I guess, for this. This this episode of the podcast. Let's yeah. see, we have we've got tons of other stuff, so it, it doesn't really. Yeah, I think we. Um, yeah. Which one did you? Which which topic do you want to talk about now? I don't know, man. I mean, they're all pretty good. I'm like looking through here. Well, actually, and on that note, while we're choosing, if anybody has questions that they want to ask us feel free to drop those in chat either um, on the YouTube link or in Slack or email us at info at absoluteappsec.com. We're always looking for topics, for speakers. Uh, we could always do a Q&A session. I know one thing we're looking towards doing, this is outside of what I'm bringing up, we are uh, going to do some nights where we uh, hang out with y'all and uh, stream us picking a random app or someone giving us a random app, uh, rather one of the you know, viewers choosing some random app and then us doing a code review and scratching our heads live and fumbling live and, you know, otherwise making probably self-deprecating jokes and uh, should be a good time. But yeah. Yeah. To throw that there. Yeah. We need to pick a date for that. Speaking of which Ken, um, we'll do that today and then we'll post it on Twitter um, and in the Slack channel so we can have people start to give us some input there. It'll probably be within the next couple of weeks, actually. Um, you know, as things slow down for the holiday season, we'll play with it. Um, and then Derek B did just have a question about string eval. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I probably need more information on that to figure it out. But I think it is just an a like the API key. That's a way to pass it around as a token value or as a parameter. Yeah. Anyway, jump into jump into Slack. Like we probably don't. Yeah. Yeah, it looks like it's just passing uh, the key into base sixty four op, so it can normalize that content for, uh, you know, putting putting it into the HTTP request. Cool. Then let's see. Ooh. Just because usually in those authorization headers, you do it is usually in base sixty. Eh, the authorization header specifically, the value is usually base sixty four encoded. So I don't think it's an eval. Mm -hmm. I think it's actually just a in calling that function and. Uh, providing a string, it looks like. Yeah. Well, actually, I want to get into as well, now that we're, I'm thinking about it, let's talk about Chrome um, and that article that you, uh, that you found on, it's called Firefox is the only alternative. Yeah, let me, um, yeah, I got the link now. Cool. I'll put that in uh, chats, plural. Um, so there's this chat and I'll put it in the Slack as well. 
Uh, but in it, you just copied the wrong one. <laughs> oh, of course I did. Of course I did. Yeah, it's really weird. Whenever um, speaking of browser stuff and uh, client apps and things like that, it's funny that whenever I um, use video chat and Slack together, it gets pretty weird. It gets pretty difficult to use. All right, so this should be the right one. Firefox yep. is the only alternative. There we go. Okay. Sorry for the re. What? All right, that that, that came out. That got okay, it. Cool. Yep. Uh, oh, so weird. So frustrating, man. Trying to get these links right. Anyways, uh, so it, you would think. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. No, it, I mean it is right. Like it's just. Do you computer much? Right. Like yeah. I know. I feel like an idiot, but it's, it is what it is. It's just, just, it's okay. What were you going to say? No, I was going to start diving in. Um, so I was going to date myself, right? Like, uh, you know, back when I started using computers, there was two options for browsers, right? There was uh, IE and there was, well, even then it was Mozilla. It was Netscape before it became Mozilla, before, before it became Firefox, right? But Netscape and IE, Internet Explorer, were the two behemoths that were out there. And um, and everyone developed to those browsers. And we kind of, we ran into a condition where Netscape started to go away and it caused, caused all sorts of I don't know, trepidation in the industry because we were we were moving towards kind of a single entity that controlled the web, right? That, that was the whole fear. And this article is almost indicative of, of the same thing going on, but based on Chrome as opposed to IE, which was back in the day, the most popular browser because it came on everybody's computer. That's what people associated with the internet was the E icon. And I don't know if we've gotten away from that. Um, and, you know, there could be some argument as well because of the, because of mobile um, and uh, yeah, I mean, because of mobile devices, mobile applications, just kind of the, the splintering of how we interact with the web that it's no longer the case, but Chromium, and this is what the article does is it makes, makes this argument that most browsers nowadays are built on top of Chromium, which is the project, the open source project that that um, that is used to render content for Chrome, um, what's Safari, right? Uh, what else, right? Like everything else is out there. Burp Suite, right? Um, Edge, uh, like they're, they're all of these browsers are using the same engine behind the scenes and it introduces yeah. it. Yeah. It introduces a number of vulnerabilities and issues that we could, that could potentially be problems in the future. Right. Um, anyway, like what was your thoughts on that? Like, why did it pique your interest to bring it up today? Yeah. Even electrons using yeah. chromium, you know, no, it, it interests, uh, I guess there's a few reasons why it would be interesting. Um, so one thing, I, so, okay, let's just start with, just systematically. So there, there was a, um, a point made that in that article that, you know, it really does come down to at this point, Chrome or Firefox. Um, and they, in they, they kind of said that you have to look at Safari as, um, not really being a competitor to give some reasons why, but one thing I wanted to pinpoint, 
uh, there was the comment about Safari typically kind of building things for their, you know, building when they interact with with folks to build web standards, it's primarily to, to drive their own view of how the web should work in their own standards. I'm not saying this. I'm just saying this is what the article mentions. I will say I've heard that sentiment many times uh, over my time at uh, where I currently work, that it is, it can be difficult during some of these working groups, uh, you know, where essentially there's, there's mostly an agreement on things. And then, you know, the Apple will kind of come in at times and uh, have some influence. It's, 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 this is not um, to say that they're, you know, anything is, it's not to be, def I need to tread lightly here, but what I'm trying to say while I'm trying to tread lightly is that there, there are reasons that, um, that someone might have to drive their own standards in, in how the web works, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And you, and if, and if you're motivated by that, it makes it hard to consider it a open standard. It's, it's, it's more of like, you know, corporate influence to an open standard for a specific for the benefit of a, of a specific entity without the benefit of the whole being at the forefront there. Um, yeah. That's the light, that's the, 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 the light step I'll take there with, with that, but, um, or the, uh, that knee treading lightly there. Um, okay. With that, uh, with that in mind, that, that means now, you know, and again, the, the technology itself speaks for the argument there. Um, but anyways, so going back to Chrome and Firefox, um, yeah, I think it's interesting because Firefox um, used to be my default testing browser. And over time, Chrome had kind of like picked up, you know, and become the thing that where it just like websites worked for one. That was a big thing. Um, but I, again, I, I agree that, you, you know, another another point raised was that there there's really it's going to be not a monopoly, but a duopoly uh, with just Firefox and, and uh, Chrome, which is probably true. Um, I think that, yeah, Firefox, one, one point they made was that Firefox uh, contributes to the, a lot to the web, to web standards, but also they put a lot of emphasis on protecting the uh, end user. And so it's, it's a necessary thing to have a, a consortium like that helping drive standards. So those are the few points I thought were interesting. Something else that's completely ancillary and like, I'm not even... It's kind of like a, just a random thought more, more so than a fully fledged one was just, you know, yesterday we were talking about how um, something silly. It was just talking about how like SVGs work with image tags, right? Um, pretty easy to suss out that, you know, unless you're, so if you're embedding an SVG ver, via image tag, not really any XSS going to occur there, right? Like you'd have to navigate to the SVG to then have scripts, meaning like browsers aren't just going to like, execute any scripts in an SVG if it's embedded via an image tag, right? Um, yeah. In modern browsers. However, and I would assume that email clients work the same. And then I started thinking about, well, how are email clients written? You know, are they Chromium based, Electron, which is Chromium based? Like, what are they written in? And so it started bringing up some more thoughts about like, oh, well, are those standards matching up like email clients with, you know, web browsers and like, because, you know, it was like, well, how could you introduce XSS if not through, a, you know, browser, like using image tags with an SVG? Um, and I, I guess it's just interesting because, you know, it makes you think like, 
hey, how many clients of desktop apps uh, that we assume are, you know, like it's just a desktop app are actually running this same, this is, they're running the same browsers basically under the hood, right? I mean, that's, there's the same kind of standards they should be interact, but is it interacting the same? Not, not, not in a lot of cases or not, a, I don't know now, but yeah. Now I feel like I'm rambling, but does that make any sense what I'm saying there? No, it, How it does. Browsers may have different behavior, but they may not just because they may be using the same underlying technology. It, it does because it's, I like we used to run into this all the time. You know, I'm going back to like these mobile tests that I've been doing. Like we've been getting a lot of them in recently, but that's one of the things that we look for is uh, embedded browser use, right? Because you can interact directly with that, the browser, like the WebKit API in iOS or on Android or Chromium, like whatever it is on either of those platforms. And you don't have to implement everything that Safari or Chrome actually does. You can just render the content and then display pages and allow for hyperlinking and everything else. Like you can abuse some of those applications to use them as browsers, even though that's unintended use. Um, but along with that becomes, okay, cross-site scripting becomes an issue, especially with React Native application, applications or JavaScript applications or Electron applications that you're running because you're embedding HTML content within the application itself and then you're interacting with the web like a browser would, but without all of the protections that the browser developers have put into it. So you're absolutely right. Like it's an issue. Um, across the board because we've become so heavily dependent on the rendering of HTML and the use of the dynamic web in these products that probably don't necessarily need dynamic web and don't need that browser rendering, but it's really easy to drop that into place. Yeah. yeah. So, is, so, so yeah. I, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you there. Right. Is basically what I'm saying. I don't know. I, I always find it interesting that we've, become so heavily dependent on Google for the browser when everyone was up in arms, you know, that period 2002 to 2004, maybe down to like 2007, eight, like everybody was so anti Microsoft because of IE, right? Oh, they've got ActiveX. Oh, they've got all these technologies they made to, to that they built into the browser to make it easy for people to use it. And now we trust Google with the same power, but we don't really talk about it. Right. It's like, Oh, it's a non-issue because Google's, you know, because their motto is don't be evil, we can trust them, right? Like, I, I, and then, you know, Google complains that Apple is making these, you know, unreasonable requests to put, you know, standards in that, it, that, that are advantageous to Apple. But Google's doing the same thing in Chrome, right? Like, what's the default search engine for Chrome? It's Google, right? Like, you have to specifically go in and change it if you want to use something else, yeah, that's that is an advantage that Google has because they're providing this Chromium browser to everyone. Uh, yeah. So, I, yeah, I, it, it's it, it feels strange to me, but I, like I'm guilty of it as well, right? I use Chrome for pretty much everything, and then like them embedding Chromium into Burp Suite means I use it even more. I will flip to Firefox for testing at times, but nowadays I'm just able to open that up and run, and it makes my life easier. So. Guess what? We stick with Chrome for most things. Because you know, I used to use Firefox, Firefox, because what? over Chrome because Firefox actually allowed allowed my XSS X 
That's <laughs> payloads to execute. Yeah. yeah. So for the longest time, I was like, I just, I'll use Firefox because, uh, yeah, Chrome's doing too good of a job of preventing it. So, yeah. Um, but now, you know, with it being built into uh, Burp Suite, it's less of a um, concern. So I, I don't tend to use it anymore. But I'm like, now I'm like, yeah, I should, you know, it's just I'm, like, I'm pretty dependent on uh, one company at this point, and they have all my data. And it's been proven that that data is not always used for the greatest purposes. So um, yeah, it's definitely an article that made me think about a lot of different things. That's why I bring it up. It seems like a it seems at, on the surface, it's like, oh, yeah, well, okay, Chrome and Firefox are the big players. Yeah, we get it. Like, that's what's news about that. But I think the the points raised in the in sort of the future landscape that was uh, discussed and, and the points brought up by just uh, overall, it made me, it spurred a lot of thought for like a eight o'clock in the morning read, you know? So, Yeah. No, it, I mean, it, and it is really interesting, like the breakdown that he does in the article on what the market share is, right? Right. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, Firefox is what, only 4% or less than that of the, of the actual traffic that we're seeing on a daily basis, um, which is somewhat discouraging, but yeah, I mean, it was 32% at one point. Right. And it's fallen that much. Um, yeah. And I don't know how much of that is related to kind of mobile, this mobile shift that's happened as well. I think where that's where Safari's had an advantage. And I know I'm getting into like nuances and I'm just speculating here. So, you know, you, nah, you can fine. feel that's free, feel about. free to interrupt me and like, tell me I'm full of crap. Cause that works too. Um, I don't know though. Right. Like I, I I'm, I'm trying to think cause I haven't had, it used to be that you would find sites that wouldn't work with specific browsers. Right. I mean, I, I always oh, like absolutely. to say, I always like to say, if you're still using internet Explorer, you kind of get what you deserve in today's web. Right. Um, obviously it's not going to support the later technologies or even the later security configurations and parameters. So yeah, not a lot of people are using IE just based on what we're seeing here. If anyone is, and if it's usually internal to some good legacy company that has legacy apps that have to be used internally. Okay, whatever, let's leave that aside. But I can't remember the last time that I really like used Firefox in a daily like work environment, right? Or just browsing the web environment. Um, even though it's installed everywhere, um, I, I, and, and again, I'm, I'm as guilty as you are as anybody else is that I'm pretty sure that it's probably even out of date, to be honest with you, right? The version that I'm running. Because we know that those browsers get updated on a you know pretty frequent basis, pretty regular basis, and but to your point, right? Like, okay, I'm trusting Google with my view into the internet. I'm also trusting Google with email. I'm trusting Google with uh, you know calendaring. Trusting Google <laughs> yeah. with you know like these organizational payments, things, payments. phone calls. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if you're using Google Voice that's a service they offer. You know. Yeah. And so it's, it, it, at some point we've become overly dependent on, again, one company, just like we were with Microsoft back in the day. But all of the complaints that you see nowadays when it comes to, oh, there's large organizations that you know control the internet. 
Facebook is the one that gets all the hate, right? Just like Microsoft back in the day, it's now Meta, whatever, right? Facebook, Facebook gets all the hate because of everything that's gone on with that platform. And it's more obvious, whereas we've got Google or Alphabet that actually controls probably more of the internet than Facebook ever has or ever will, to be honest. You know, it's actually funny. I, man, speaking of meta, so many people have kind of shit on that like idea and like made a lot of jokes and just been really a lot of, a lot of just kind of like, haha, you know, all that. I think it's really short sighted of people. I think people should realize like AR is here. VR is here. You know, I mean, if you think people are on their phones a lot, imagine once they can interact more uh, in a more featureful way with uh, virtual environments, you know, there, this is going to just keep growing. And I mean, you know, right now it's like 3D picture. Well, what if we add in temperature controlled suits and smells and things like that that make it feel more real? Um you know, what happens then? People are going to spend a lot of time on, in that virtual environment. I think that they're just trying to get ahead of that. And um, it's to me, the people that are silly are the ones that are mocking it. Because I think you have to understand that, uh, yeah, long term, uh, they're, they're, ma- they're making a play towards the long term. And I think that they're mm-hmm. doing, uh, I think it's intelligent, to be honest with you. As much as people mock it, I actually think it's really smart. Um, if yeah. I was in his shoes, uh, in that company's shoes, but if I was, I was Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, that would be a space I'd be trying to, because they, they already have like, to the point of what we've been talking about, a, a huge user base. They're already positioned for this. They already have they already have your data. They already have you hooked into their ecosystem. And now they're just to expand that ecosystem and build off that power instead of just being a social networking site. So in the long run, a lot of ha-has right now, but you know, wait five or 10 years. I wonder what it'll look like. Well, and so... Going back to this article, this is exactly what happened with with Google, right? They realized as a search engine, yes, they had all this data, they had what people were searching for, but they didn't control the user's interactions with the web or with the internet. And so what did they do? They went out, they built Chrome, they open sourced it, uh, they put all of this energy into the interface that people are using to interact with the web. And 10 years, 15 years later, they know now are this huge monopoly of, okay, everyone uses us because it's the easy way to get into things and they can manipulate. um, I mean, they can control that interface and what people see and what people do on the web because of that foresight that they had 10 years ago. Um, And so, yeah, Meta, I, I mean, honestly, right? Like you and I have both played with the Oculus. We've used it. It's, it's, pretty awesome right like there's yeah there's no getting around it and i messed with unity to 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 build some of that and man it's a pretty like it is pretty sweet what they've done they make it easy to get onboarded as a developer and i'm not like a you know i'll be just straight up honest these are my own opinions i think i have to say that now these are my opinions i don't express i don't express it for anyone else i don't care for facebook much i don't but however now that I'm seeing this this expansion um, and this sort of like future state, uh, man, it's exciting to see what Meta is doing there. So, um, to your point yeah. though, they 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 have you hooked into an ecosystem. Leverage it. You know, you're right. Yeah. That's exactly what Google did. They started with the search engine and they blown up from there. So, yeah, yeah man, yeah. I, I don't I don't think it's unrealistic to say in a world where we're being uh, pushed more remote and 
I'm frankly at times a little bit more isolated, um, that this, this will be a way to connect with, uh, you know, society in a different manner. Yep. So. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's just it. Like it's, I mean, it always starts with the games, um, like to kind of test out what it looks like and, uh, but you'll see, I, I, you know, I can't, you know, eventually you're going to see zoom or like teams or Slack or some of these like communication portals move into the VR space, uh, because it's, it's a natural progression, right? Hey, yeah, let's just pop that on and it'll give us face-to-face interactions again. I, I mean, not on a screen like this, but it'll feel more live and it's going to happen. That's, that's just it. You can't fault a company for trying to, to pop into that. So anyway, and, you know, we, we, we took an interesting, you know, turn today after all that we've talked about. Um, Covered a lot. But yeah, we did. We really did. <laughs> Everything from cancel culture to browser wars to authentication and how hard it is. Uh, but I think yeah. we've solved nothing today. I hope everyone no. got enjoyment out of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oops. Sorry. <laughs> Oops. But uh, watch for the announcement as far as our upcoming uh, live code review show um, as Ken and I drink and look at code. It's going to be a good time. Uh, and yeah, but otherwise join us next week. Uh, we'll have other topics to go to run through. Um, we're excited to you know, keep at it, join the conversation, jump into Slack, hit us up on Twitter at absolute AppSec or at Seth law or at CK tricky. Uh, we love to talk about this stuff, um, but for sure, join the, the absolute AppSec uh, Slack channel. There's a lot of good people in there and a lot of good conversation that happens. So yeah. Otherwise, Ken, any any last minute thoughts before we close it out for this week? Nope. Just appreciate the love and the viewership. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for giving us your time. Thanks, everybody. Have a good one.